Hello and welcome. This is the Studio Stack Podcast. Each week we go behind the scenes and talk to industry leaders about what it takes to build, join, and invest in startup studios. I am your host, Deanna Lesage, and this podcast is your startup studio masterclass. Today on the show, we have Jordan Schlipp, a serial entrepreneur, early stage investor, and the CEO of Rainmaking Venture Studio. Prior to Rainmaking, Jordan helped build one of the world's most successful startup accelerators, Startup Bootcamp, and was partner at Vector, a global Hong Kong-based VC fund. Jordan specializes in entrepreneurial education and served as a teaching fellow at the prestigious University College London. He holds a Master in Engineering and Engineering Science from University of Oxford. If you can't tell, Jordan is incredibly sharp and smart, but he has this magical way of breaking down super complex concepts into easy to understand sentiments. Um, I've been a big fan of Rainmaking Studio for a while because uh, personally, I'm, I'm really obsessed with corporate innovation, which is the exact domain that they specialize in and excel at. Um, I learned so much from Jordan in this episode. We get into this distinction between startup studios and venture studios, the evolution of Rainmaking from a co-op of serial founders through the first attempt at a studio and the lessons learned from that onto the model they're pioneering today. Um, talk about why corporates struggle to innovate and how they should think about leveraging scale strengths, what's involved in corporate venture building, how venture studios Studios de-risk the process of creating new businesses and so much more. Um, but I've held this up enough. It's a brilliant episode. I can't wait for you to listen. Let's get right into it. Hello. Hi, Jordan. I'm so excited to have you on today. I've been such a big fan of Rainmaking and getting to know you has been such a pleasure. So uh, welcome to the show. Thank you for coming on. My pleasure. Thank you. The, the honor is mine. It's great to be here. Awesome. Um, all right. So let's just dive straight in. Uh, first question, what is your definition of a startup studio? <laughs> well, How do you I'm define gonna, it? Yeah, I'm going to steal someone else's definition. So Sarah Anderson at the Vault Fund, I think, has come up with probably the, the most concise and elegant definition, in my view. Um, and she describes a venture studio as an entity that acts as either a founder or a co-founder of a portfolio of new companies. And so for me, the, the concept of that, like the use of the word founder or co-founder is a really important distinction because it determines obviously the ownership level, but also the relative control over the development process itself. Um, yeah. I know some studios don't necessarily share my view in this latter piece, but to me, I view ideation as being a, a strategically core capability of any studio and that should not be outsourced. But that's probably my own preference is coming through there. I think that's a lot of it. I, I definitely think there's a distinction between kind of a builder studio and some of the other types of studios. And that's one kind of follow-up question that I had for you was, um, I know Rainmaking operates more as a venture studio, and there's definitely a distinction to be made there. What would be the kind of difference in your mind between, you know, kind of a startup studio that doesn't have a venture fund or the capital capabilities versus yeah so 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 you know i i think realistically uh a startup studio needs to have both the build capabilities like a cap like the build capabilities and the capital function so absent of the capital function i'm like well how does that work (laughs) um that's an accelerator um so from from my side it's very clear in order to be a venture builder of any sort you have to have both the build function and the capital function in in in, I say in-house, but like it could be a dual structure, but that's the core element. Right. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I know we've talked a little bit and you kind of have told me that Rainmaking iterated on the model, I think more than most uh, were your words. And so um, can you talk about the evolution of the studio and how you and the team landed on building ventures with corporates? Yeah, so um, Rainmaking actually originally began as a company builder uh, where it was more of a, a trusted cooperative of serial entrepreneurs. And what I mean by this is, my co-founders and I, and most of my co-founders are a wee bit older than I am, but as they were becoming parents for the first time, they were trying to juggle the sort of responsibilities of parenthood, looking at their partners in the eye and saying, oh, I really want to do another startup that's probably going to fail <laughs> with, oh, I'm going to become, you know, a dad or a mom. Like, how does that work? So the solution that ultimately they, they came up with was this scenario where each of us would individually go build our own startups our own personal equity was hot, uh, was owned by a common hold code. So it meant that we had this common hold code, Rainmaking, that was not publicly facing in the early days, where myself, you know, Carsten, Morton, Casper would go build our own startups. And essentially, if mine failed, Carsten's failed, but Casper succeeded, we then share in Casper's wealth. So it was sort of giving ourselves like a portfolio across, uh, you know, really a trusted group of serial entrepreneurs amongst ourselves. And that's how it initially began. Um, and we had you know, some successes very much doing it that way. And then really <laughs> what we did as well as cross that initial journey is we had a lot of assumptions about, oh my God, it's gonna be great because you're gonna be your startup and my startup and we can centralize some core functions. They're gonna be like synergies and we're gonna unlock some sort of efficiencies. And, yeah, share some resources. Yeah, and we, we tried it. And the only thing we managed to uh, effectively and efficiently centralize was like back office payroll and financing. <laughs> Everything else needed to be, you know, dedicated and specifically built to the, the individual startup and match its own culture, right? But what happened next after that sort of initial uh, cooperative type model is we then tried to sort of systematize the process of building startups in a much more traditional startup studio approach. At the time, there was no corporates involved. It was a mix of our own and some, you know, I say angels, but venture capital money. Um, but ultimately that, that sort of go around ended up where the studio sort of started, well, it closed in on one clear winner. So we ended up spinning out a startup that raised a series A and the sort of the rest of the scaffolding of the, of the studio sort of fell by the wayside. Um, that experience to us, like we learned so much in that process. And one of the things that we realized was sort of two key learnings. But one of them was absolutely at the time we were just undercapitalized to create that mm -hmm. portfolio of startups. So, you know, we were funding these things out of our own pockets. And uh, I can safely say that when the burn rate <laughs> per month is coming out of your own personal bank account, to the team, it gets pretty twitchy. And then, yeah. you know, you know, we just didn't have deep enough pockets to run the studio, do the initial seed investments, pre-seed investments to get the venture up to the point that it was able to really raise a Series A in the open market. Well, we managed to do that once. We just really couldn't do that cost effectively across a portfolio. So missing that capital function, um, we, we ended up sort of collapsing one venture. The second thing that we really learned was more the operational learnings. So, you know, our views of sort of what works and what doesn't when running a studio. Um, and, you know, if you want to go to that, we can unpick all of those. But, but really, that was sort of the second evolution. And the third evolution for us was when we, by accident, and it sort of sounds 
crazy, but it's true. By accident, we ended up uh, falling into building startups with large corporations. So now, what was the kind of iteration of that? Was it just a company, a corporation came to you and said, you know, we know you guys know how to build startups. Yeah. So it, it was a byproduct of two things. So um, one of the companies we, we, we'd founded many years ago in 2010 was a startup accelerator network, right? Very similar to Techstars called Startup Bootcamp. Um, yeah. And as the accelerator industry evolved, we started getting corporates attached to it. So in the early days, we were actually one of the first accelerator programs ever to take both an industry view and a multi-corporate view. So industry being like FinTech London, FinTech New York, um, or shipping and maritime Singapore or Hamburg, right? So we would base an accelerator program in a key industry, not a theme, in a key location that's relevant to that industry. And then mm. we'd get multiple corporates to sponsor the program. And that initially was driven very, very, for very selfish reasons. We, we wanted a bunch of big corporate logos yeah. because that would attract better startups and we'd get better equity stakes and better startups, right? Mm. And that whole, what we didn't really expect was corporates going bananas for accelerator programs. And so this whole corporate innovation world sort of exploded. And then we found ourselves with, you know, about 85 Fortune 500s attached to start a bootcamp, you know, at its height. And then those corporates started coming to us asking for like, look, this accelerator is fun, but it's not really moving the needle on my innovation needs. Yeah. And so we ended up somewhat by accident again, sort of founding what is now called Raymaking Innovation, which is just a corporate innovation consultancy. So we ended up building a business, which was sort of basically we're being asked by corporates to do stuff for them. Um, and part of that consultancy business as it grew was we started doing some strategy projects, right? Innovation strategy projects. And yeah, so the what, opportunity thing. Type yeah, stuff. exactly. Exactly. So we started doing a, a whole bunch of like opportunity, well, it won't bore you with it, but some strategy stuff for corporates helping them to navigate um, how they can see what's coming around the corner and how they deploy a portfolio of different innovation vehicles to kind of better weather the storm, if you, if you will, um, or better drive strategic growth. And we've done some stra strategy work with um, Jaguar Land Rover, actually, back in like 2015. And one of the things we kept sort of impressing at the time, which you know, now is sort of self-evident, but at the time it was kind of quite hard for the uh, automotive OEMs, the incumbents to really understand this, at least emotionally, mm. you know, if not intellectually, was the fact that, you know, making or manufacturing metals with wheels wasn't necessarily the most future-proof business model, given the rise of fleet right. owners like Uber or Google, or, you know, and EV fleets and stuff like that. And so it could go the way in the same, the same way the airline industry has gone, where you know, Boeing and Airbus make planes for airlines, right? Exactly. And it's and it's a very different model. Um, and so we were sort of pushing Jaguar Land Rover to get into digital mobility and saying, look, you need to be building mobility ventures, which then turned around with, okay, you told us we need to do it, go do it. <laughs> and I'm like, what? Yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot of corporates that want to innovate and they know they recognize that their business model isn't going to stand the long, you know, kind of test of time, but they don't have, I'm not sure what, what do you, what would be your answer to that kind of, why don't they innovate on their own, even if they have the ideas and the resources to do so, you know, what's the challenge there? Um, I mean, that's the question, the crux of what's the challenge really with corporate innovation, right? Now, th there are some industries that are going to be very different to others. So there are some industry mm -hmm. like, like, for example, the Stone Age didn't end through lack of stone. The same is going to happen with oil and gas, right? They will 
get to a point where they won't run out of oil and gas, but the actual business model will, will come to an end. So they will suffer an extinction event, which is very different to other industries, whether it's like, you know, retail pre-e-commerce, post-e-commerce, or, you know, um, mobile operators sort of, or te te telephone companies pre, you know, voice and message over IP versus post. So there are, there are fundamental shifts and new business models that are coming in, which is normally the primary driver for, for disruption or change. But right. to answer your question, like why do corporates, despite the fact they have billions in cash and loads of smart people and loads of assets, like why do they struggle? The short answer to that is <clears throat> the way they make decisions is by looking at a set of data sets, which are like the traditional strategic tools. What are my competitors doing? You know, and they'll look at like normal like signals and the kind of information they're ingesting to make key strategic decisions. By the time that information flow funnels them like a piece of information, which is like, okay, it is now like pretty certain we need to do X. Right. Yeah. Then the time the market gives them between them understanding we now need to do X, the time it gives them to then be a winner, given their response time as an organization to adapt to that change is it takes them too long to adapt. So yeah. basically the market based on their normal strategic toolkits is giving them a time period of say, you know, I don't know, like let's call it 10 but it's going to take them a hundred you know of units to actually make that change so they miss out so the the, the yeah. fundamental reason is they're just not they can't turn the oil tanker quick enough because they're not getting the signals early enough and they're not making key decisions early enough i agree and i think you know some of my own experience with corporate innovation i don't know that their incentives are aligned to move fast enough like i think if you have this kind of full-time salary and it's like yeah we need to innovate but it's not really on my shoulders i don't yeah. think they have to start up like kind of chip on <laughs> absolutely the innovation i mean so the incentivization is a major issue right so if you look at c-suite the average tenure of a publicly traded ceo is like four four and a half years and some of the stuff is like, that's not my problem. And ultimately, yeah. and ultimately, you know, their, their huge bonuses are linked predominantly to share price. And so it's kind of like, how do I get short term share price accretion and leave the problem to someone else to deal with? And so right. what you tend to see with corporates is like, they tend to go from a lot of cost cutting, a lot of optimization, you know, they're trying to get basic like EPS improvement, like earnings per share improvement. And then the market wakes up and they goes, man, you've completely missed the boat on this stuff. So they bring in a new CEO and the new CEO is then given this challenge of like, we need to do growth, right? And it's like alternative growth and we need to turn this ship around. And they right. sort of go in ebbs and flows of that. But but ultimately the, the incentive mechanisms from the key decision makers aren't really aligned for long-term growth, which is kind of an argument of why private equity does what it does. It's like, let's take it off the public markets. Let's not make it subjective to quarterly earnings or interim earnings. Let's invest in the long-term and be a long-term stakeholder more often than not. I mean, some of them flip it in five years, but you, you get the idea. So incentives is a major problem as well. Yeah. And I think it's interesting that you kind of bring up 
private equity. And I think there's this, uh, this really cool sentiment that you have and, and what Rainmaking does best is this kind of delivering private equity level risk with VC level returns. And so I think like that is something I would love to kind of dive into. How are you doing that as a company? Like what, what is this kind of de-risking model that you guys have, you know, put in place and excel at? And I think you have a really robust like process around that and the reasons why, you know, venture studios work in this capacity. So I'd love to just kind of hear a little bit about that. Yeah. So um, I'm going to tie that back in because, you know, there's an element here where when we first started um, building startups in partnership with corporates, and as I kind of alluded to specifically, you know, with Jagolando at the beginning, what we realized across sort of tens of different ventures across multiple different industries is that the initial experience was bittersweet. The sweet side of this was we got really good at leveraging the scale strengths of our corporate partners, which would be like distribution, you know, you know, scaled infrastructure assets like logistics networks, real estate, warehousing. It could be regulation, a whole variety of different, you know, organizational capabilities and infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And when we did that, we saw our portfolio ventures scale faster than anything we'd ever seen in the wild, but also they would reach scale at a significantly reduced investment cost to, to get to that point. And so that was like this, this sort of like, oh, wow, that's amazing. The, the bitter side to our initial experience when doing this was we then were looking at our initial portfolio of, say, 30 odd ventures with corporates, and we weren't seeing the return on, on investment or the success rates that we could achieve by building startups in the world. So we had this like enigma, this conundrum of, hold on, despite all of these scale strengths that our corporate partners are providing us, ultimately we're getting worse results if we just built the startup in the wild enough. Like, hmm. what, why? Right. And it took us a while to figure that out. And this is where we, we sort of came to the realization, probably after more failures than most, that uh, we couldn't consistently, because there were some successes, but we couldn't consistently build successful ventures with corporates within the constraints of professional service firms. So we ended up ripping out all of our corporate venture building activities from our consultancy business. We ended up raising a dedicated fund and launching, you know, Rainmaking Venture Studio as an investment-only corporate venture builder or venture studio. And this whole experience which we've been on is, is coming to the realization that we see corporate innovation, which is a fundamental need that's not going to go away anytime soon, as an investment asset class. And no one else that I've really come across thinks of it that way. And the reason why we get really excited by it is because in our model now, what we've managed to achieve is we build businesses, but because we get to leverage all the scale strengths from our corporate partners, this significantly de-risks the process of building the business while also achieving you know, scale at farly reduced cost of investment. And so collectively what we're getting is we're getting better returns on investment than traditional venture capital. So what we've kind of feel that we've cracked here is we found a new asset class, which is sort of more private equity level risk, but with VC level returns. I I love that. I think the way that you're able to de-risk a venture by leveraging the scale strengths of a corporate is the key. That's the kind of winning formula. Um, And I think that when you're thinking about the corporates that you work with, what scale strengths are you looking for? Like, what is what's the criteria of how, you know, you evaluate the corporates that you work with? 
what what resources should they have and bring to the table and how does the kind of how does the process work you know when they're building with you yeah so i mean the, the, there's there's two things there's firstly there's like the theoretical scale strengths that exist right so when you look at a particular uh corporate partner and i'll give you some examples that might have some obvious ones right so um like we were doing some work with one of the the bottling companies of coca-cola and you're like okay what are they good at it's like well okay they have a manufacturing facility that bottles the coca-cola not so interested in that but they distribute their product to about two million outlets in europe two million mm -hmm. so they've got pretty much every single restaurant they've got every single supermarket every single cash and carry they are doing the distribution of their product to so they've got huge customer relationships to those types of like businesses, whether it's restaurants all the way through to big supermarket chains, often they're doing their own distributions. They've got huge warehousing logistics and like distribution capabilities. And then they've got the products themselves. And you could then say at a stretch, they've got the Coca-Cola brand. Yeah, and, and there's like, okay, that's, that's interesting. And then it's like, okay, what business, cause what startups and what ventures can we build up leveraging that? But then you might look at another business, which might be, you know, um, an insurance company it's like okay they've got policyholders they've got regulation they've got insurance products right and so it's like you just really it's always on a case-by-case -case basis but just because they exist the second question for us is they might exist on paper but how accessible are they mm. right and some of that is like how willing is the corporate able to do that what's the corporate's capabilities of being able to provide that at that capability to a new co-venture and the second one is like actually it might look good on paper, but, you know, operationally, do they have space? I'll give you some examples. So, like, if they say we've got distribution to all these customers, it's like, okay, well, have you got any channels to do that? Like, are they proven? Does it work? Could we access them as a corporate? And they might turn around and say, no way we're giving you access. Like, risk and compliance, GDPR or something, there's just no way we're going to do that. You're right. like, well, okay. So, theoretically, you've got great distribution, but practically, you're not giving us access. So, I'm going to discount that. And then secondly, you might look at someone like, say, DHL, and they're the largest um, provider of warehousing real estate in the world. They, they have the largest footprint. Right? At some point, I think yeah. Amazon will, will take them over. But DHL, it's like, okay, you've got this warehousing real estate. Amazing. Well, what's the occupancy rate? Because if I am trying to build a business that's leveraging the existing real estate assets, like, do you have any space left in them? Or operationally, like, how easy is it, given the, what I'm trying to build with the venture, is it for us to access those operations? Like, right. you know, do I have to use your warehouse management systems or do, do we, you know, cause that might be prohibited. So there's, there's an element of looking at what are those capabilities and scale strengths and assets. And some of it might just be capabilities. They might be really good at actuarial models as an insurer. It's like, cool. They've got a bunch of actuaries. We can use that to create new right. risk models for a business, right? Whether we're entering parametric insurance or something else. So there's a, there's a theoretical, capability set and asset set on scale strengths, then there's the kind of our due diligence of how accessible is it? Yeah. And then, yeah. Sorry. Oh, sorry. Um, and yeah, and that diligence process in yeah. how do you go about as a, as a studio kind of understanding their white space? And I know it does, it's not, there's a lot of corporates will come to you with ideas. They have no shortage of ideas of things that they want to build or what they think that they can do. It's usually some kind of small iteration on their current model, not a completely new uh, business model. 
And then there's the kind of um, secondary consideration around you don't want to build something that catapult, you know, cannibalizes their current model. Um, and so you're kind of something that's strategically aligned, but doesn't disrupt their core business, you know, at least not at this point. So how do you, you know, as a studio go in and, and do that yeah. ideation work yeah. with them how, and kind of how long does it take and what does the process look like? So when corporates have ideas, we try our very best to have them not bring us their ideas. <laughs> <laughs> we say nothing. <laughs> um, and and I don't mean this disparagingly, but it's just it's a it's a stat, so it's a fact. When a corporate has come to us with a very specific idea, i.e., you know, typically it's like, oh, we've got these like, oh, they've got loads of PowerPoint. They've been working on it for six or eight months. The you know, exec buy-ins. They're very excited by this thing, and they're struggling to go from like PowerPoints to profits. And they basically come to us and like, hey, oh, okay. could could you build this? And when they do that. Um, we have yet to have any of those any of those ideas pass our investment. So we've got a 100% kill rate when corporates come to us with fully baked ideas. Our preference is to say, don't come to us with ideas. What we're going to do is we're going to basically understand two things. So one of them is to understand your strategic areas of interest. So looking at your medium to long term, so four or five years out, what areas are strategically relevant to your business? Mm. So kind of like, what's the stuff you're excited by? What's the stuff you cannot do? You'll never be interested in doing. So if I was to pick like a company like Experian, they're a big credit bureau. It's like, they've got loads of credit data. Do you want to become a lender? They're like, absolutely not. We'll never allow to become a lender. So, okay, cool. So you know what's sort of strategically out of scope, what's too far away, what might be too close to core, but also thinking a bit more in that adjacency of like four to five years, like what is the stuff that they're excited about and why? Mm. Because the question we need, the reason why we need to understand that is in 90% of the cases, we're exiting a successful venture back to the corporate. So they acquire it off us and the founders. Yeah, so that's an interesting point too, to kind of dive into a little bit as well. Cause I think that's, that's a really good point. Yeah, but so, so for us, it's like, we need to do our due diligence for our IC around what's the likelihood they're gonna wanna buy this thing back. So that's a strategic element. The second is then really understanding these scale strengths, right? So quite frankly, it's a, it's a bunch of expert interviews. It's, um, we're getting better at it because we sort of see these things. So sometimes it's site visits. We physically turn up and look at the depot. It's like, let's have a look at it. Um, so there is a little bit of understanding and putting our own risk assessment on that. But also some of those capabilities, the venture isn't going to necessarily need them in day one. It can take a couple of years as the venture scales to start pulling in on those. So th there's some nuance to that. But once we understand those two pillars, the strategic medium to long term, like growth areas of interest, the strategic right. alignment overlapped with their scale strengths of their unique organization and their capabilities, that's where we ideate. So within that Venn diagram is where we will then start ideating for venture mm -hmm. ideas. And then the, that the, like the third pillar is very much the VC toolkit, like size of opportunity, timing, market, competition, you know, right. business model, blah, blah, blah. So the attractiveness of our investments has exactly the same ambition level as traditional venture in the world. Right. And to kind of double double tap on that point around we want our you know corporates to we give them all the the ability to buy back but the kind of ultimate goal is that they'll be interested in buying the venture back from you at year five um can you explain a little bit about that and why that makes sense yeah so i mean 
we've kind of danced around it, but for, for the avoidance of doubt, you know, when we build, you know, ventures in partnership with large corporations, we do so on a no fees basis, right? So via our fund, we'll invest millions of our own capital alongside the corporate partner from root to fruit. It's only when we, us and the corporate, mutually like an idea that we think is investable, do we, Raymaking, incorporate the new co in the relevant geography. Then you we... invest and they invest at the, Correct. In, in the right. Correct. I can, I can break this down, but essentially we incorporate the new co, we create venture team of proven founders, so a CEO, CTO pair who've typically raised Series A before, and then mm -hmm. ourselves as like, you know, founders and VCs, ourselves sort of guide that process from incorporation through to acquisition. But what we're really doing is we're trying to ensure that the ventures that we're building are aligned to the corporate partner's strategy from day one. And we're aiming to exit success, you know, successful ventures back to the corporate, typically in year five, right? So they fully own the scale business, and then they capture, say, 80% of the lifetime value of the business as you continue to grow from year five onwards. And this raises two really interesting points. So traditional VCs, investors, would be like, that's crazy. Why would you do that? You're missing the convexity. Like, right, because you don't get the unicorn. Like, you'll yeah. never get... Yeah, what, you're leaving at year five and they get to ride it all the way through to, like, IPO. And it's like, it's, yeah, I mean, yes, that is kind of, um, at first glance, a crazy decision to make from a traditional VC venture capitalist. But the main, bear in mind, the main aspect of our model is about accessing those scale strengths because when we do we get significantly higher strike rates so compared to a traditional venture of like one in ten one in fifteen like really wins we're getting literally one in three one in two like right half or let me be a bit more conservative one of three companies we incorporate exits the strike rate is fundamentally different but also right. because we're a studio and the cap table if the corporate buys it back, the cap table only has three stakeholders, us, the founders and the corporate. And so we're splitting the entire cap table between three stakeholders, which means we get a really high uh, equity stake, especially in proportion to the total investment we're making. So when you look at the maths of our model, which is really high ownership stakes, you know, relative to low cost investment to reach scale with a strike weight of like one in three, we do really well in return on investment. But so the, the model, the mathematics of our investment asset class is different, which is kind of why I allude to the private equity point versus traditional venture capital, which is like right. you need one, you know, one venture will return the entire fund plus your IRR. But right. in order to get access to the scale strengths that make our model and the mass possible, there is this symbiotic partnership with the corporate, which is I want all of these intimate scale strengths. But in order for them to feel comfortable to provide a new co with external talent, like intimate access to their customers, to all of this stuff, the only way we found that effectively ensures good behaviors is to give them the exclusive right to become the acquirer. And knowing that they have the exclusive right to become the acquirer makes them feel comfortable to give us the intimate access and the support which needs which drives us with like the, the de-risking of the business building process right? for us. So it's understanding that actually we need to have this relationship. So the give and the take is they give us their scale strengths. In return, we get out a year five. 
but that does not mean we make less returns. Actually, I really believe we make way higher returns than traditional venture capital. Right. I mean, there's no, I don't know that any studio can even say that they're exiting one in three. And that's definitely not the case for any venture capital. So the model makes a ton of sense. And I think that, you know, there's, there's so much to be learned from the iteration of kind of your journeys and, um, you know, how you've built the studio out so far and, and your plans to expand. I know you guys are kind of moving into the, the North American market and uh, starting to kind of think through, have you worked with corporates in, in the US before? Uh, yeah, no, we have. So we've been, we've done, um, so for example, our first corporate, uh, corporate partner in the US was Morgan Stanley. And we started working, we do work with corporates in the US. And nice. off the back of the sort of, let's call it corporate partner pull, we've now um, are in the process of setting up a dedicated studio in North America. So we've got a CEO in place and we're now growing the team and putting boots on the ground um, to to really target the largest market in the world when it comes to this um, this asset class, right? Corporate venture building. That's so exciting. Um, are you guys putting it, are you kind of raising a fund for the new studio and and, and kind of expanding the team? Uh, are you looking to work with corporates in, in the near term? Like all of that kind of growth things? Absolutely, all of those. So we're actually raising, a, you know, we're in, we're in the process of starting raising a new fund at the minute. Um, so we, you know, it's kind of um, when doing this model, I mean, most studio people will understand, right? Startup studios and investment as a, like an emerging asset class is way undercapitalized compared to traditional venture capital, right? It's just so few capital has really gone into it for various mm-hmm. reasons, um, which meant that, you know, our fund one, you know, there's an element of like making the, the fund one size uh, believable, deployable, uh, manageable. Right. Um, where LPs are still a little bit, um, there aren't that many LPs that really understand studios and what we do, especially us, which work with large corporates, adds a little bit more complexity. Um, so yeah, right. we've we've kind of burned through that, that capital. We're now in the process of raising a new fund. So yeah, if there are any LPs, absolutely. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, there's a lot. It's interesting. It's been an interesting journey to see, you know, the subscribers. I have, I have a newsletter that I put out as well. And so I'm seeing all the subscribers to the newsletter and people uh, very interested to see the number of kind of LPs and people with that kind of a background email nice. address and looking them up on LinkedIn going like, oh, okay, you're interested in the studio model. So I think that there is a lot more interest than there has been in the past and studios have had a tremendous funding year last year and i think they're gonna do good you know really good this year too so uh definitely excited but yeah for sure any you know anyone in the audience that i think is listening uh if you're a corporate and you're interested in reaching out working with rainmaking definitely reach out and same thing with lps um and thank you so much for for coming on the podcast uh it was absolutely true masterclass in corporate innovation venture studio building learned so much uh i appreciate your time thanks no pleasure diana absolute pleasure thank you Thanks for listening to the Studio Stack podcast. Be sure to subscribe to catch new episodes. And if you want to stay updated on the latest news content and job postings from studios around the world, check out the Studio Stack newsletter. Link is in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. I am your host, Deanna Lesage, and that is all from me. Thanks for listening.